What a great morning of worship. Amen. Amen. I'm so glad that you're here today. What a great day to worship the Lord and to praise His name and to celebrate in all of His goodness. And I believe that God's got a word for all of our hearts today. You know, we need the Lord, don't we, in our life? Are we dependent on Him? We have no way or ability or power to live this Christian life without the power of God working in us. Amen. And uh, we need his strength and his power that only he can give. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to look with me. We're going to look at the same passage uh, uh, that we looked at last week. We want to uh, look at it further again this week. So if you find Acts chapter 13, and uh, my heart was blessed as Pastor Jay preached last week and opened God's word to us from uh, Acts chapter 13. I've been reflecting on that and thinking about it uh, uh, all week again this week. And today I want us to look in this same passage together today. So if you have your Bible, look with me to Acts chapter number 13, beginning with verse number 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord, while they were ministering the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Today, I want us to <clears throat> look at this passage of Scripture and, and think about the, the marks of a missionary church, a church that is healthy and, and committed to the mission of Jesus Christ. What are the marks of that kind of church? And so uh, today, as you're, look, as you're following along, you might have the outline in the bulletin and you want to fill it in. I'm going to give you the answers before I start the message, all right? Number one, in a mark of this missionary church is a diversity of people and leadership. Secondly, a passion for God. Thirdly, the presence of the Holy Spirit among God's people working. Next, the discernment in the congregation. The congregation is discerning how the Spirit of God is working. And then the other thing, a mark that's in this missionary church, is corporate prayer and fasting. And finally, there's obedience to the revealed will and plan of God. So we're going to unpack those truths today, all right? And uh, so, uh, first of all, I want to call with you about Antioch. Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It's uh, only behind Rome and Alexandria. It was a cosmopolitan city, over 800,000 people. It was a center of business and trade. It was known as the Queen of the East, or Antioch the beautiful, or Antioch the Great. 
It was on the Orontes River, about 20 miles from Seleucia, which was the seaport nearest to it. It's in Syria. Most of the people are Syrian, but the culture of the city is Greek. And uh, it's a Greek language and Greek culture kind of city. There's a large Jewish community is there, but the city's known for its moral corruption and moral bankruptcy, even though they worship multiple pagan gods. The Antioch Church begins, we see its inception in chapter number 11, verse 29. A few weeks ago, we preached about the inception and the, the beginning of that church, how that Jews, Jewish believers, were dispersed from Jerusalem, Judea, and uh, even out of Samaria, and they make their way as far as Antioch. And there's some men from Cyprus and Cyrene who also Jews, but believers, begin to preach the gospel to Gentiles also. And they start being saved. The church in Jerusalem hears about it, and they send an envoy to see uh, if this truly is from God. And the man they choose is Barnabas. Mr. Encouragement himself, and he, when he arrives, witnesses that it is indeed the hand of God and the grace of God and a movement of God taking place in Antioch. He is so overwhelmed with the need that he knows they need great instruction, and he sends off and goes to Tarsus, and he looks until he finds Saul. And he said, Brother Saul, come with me. There's much work to be done in Antioch, and and Saul goes with Barnabas, and for over a year, they are teaching believers in Antioch, discipling them, and believers are first called Christians at Antioch. God's Spirit is so working powerfully in Antioch. They send a missionary relief offering up to Jerusalem, and they report about God, how God is powerfully working there. And it seems that the Spirit of God is moving so powerfully in Antioch and preparing them to become a missionary center that we see that the locus or the center of Christianity is moving from Jerusalem to Antioch. And Antioch becomes the new home base for Christianity in the world. It becomes the center of mission sending and mission strategy. It's moving north and west. It's spreading rapidly. Jay talked about this in his sermon last week, and it was greatly encouraging to me as he talked about the spread and the rapid expansion of the church in other places. It is exciting to hear how people are coming to know the Lord in unbelievable places like China and Africa and South America and Asia. Christianity today is spreading rapidly, but it's in the southern hemisphere where God is at work in the most powerful way. And they are sending missionaries from those nations in the southern hemisphere to the west. Because Western culture has become godless and Christless, and it's a post-cultural Christianity. And Western culture is in increasingly secular and has a godless worldview. When I had the opportunity to go to Europe for a few days 
earlier this summer. I was just struck again about the empty cathedrals and the empty churches that dot almost every corner. They're huge buildings, but there are no people going. That's what happened when the church begins to die. And I don't want our church to become a statistic. Now listen close. Churches are dying and closing at an alarming rate in the United States of America. Between 6,000 and 10,000 churches close their doors every year. 200 churches will close their doors this week in the United States. It's not because of the culture. It's not because of adversity. It's not because of persecution. It's because we're unwilling to change to reach this lost world for Christ. We're unwilling to become a missionary church with a missionary heart and with a missionary mind. Tom Rainer, in his anatomy of a dying church, he talks about what happens when churches begin to die, and it's happening all over America. And he said the pathway back is we got to, first of all, remember our purpose. And our purpose as a church is to pray and to love people, and to love God with all of our heart, and to proclaim the gospel to all who will listen, and to teach the good news and how to live this Christian life, and engage our neighbors. The second thing that needs to happen, according to Dr. Rayner, is that we must again become a people of prayer. Are you all with me today? We must become again a people of prayer. We must become again a people of prayer. We can announce an event and we'll get a lot of people come, but you announce a prayer event. And nobody wants to come. What does it say about us? We've got to quit seeing the church as a place of comfort and a place of stability in a world of rapid change. And we've got to emphasize, again, evangelism and discipleship and get our eyes and our hearts external, seeing a broken, lost world and not internal and just focusing on our own self and our own programs. In this church at Antioch, I want us to look at the, this, this great church, this great, and some of the lessons that we can learn for us today. First of all, there's diversity among the people and the leadership in the church. There's diversity in the congregation. It's a metropolitan city. It's the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It... Uh, but the church kind of looked like the city. The city it, there was diversity in the church. Jesus, when he called his disciples, he called a diverse bunch of people to follow him, didn't he? Are you all awake this morning? Can you all just say amen every once in a while? Let me know you're awake, all right? He calls, 
He calls these diverse people to him. He brings Galileans and fishermen and business owners and tax gatherers and servants. Poor people follow him. Rich people follow him. Men are following him. Women are following him. A centurion follows him. A Syrophoenician woman follows him. Zealots follow him. Prostitutes follow him. Formerly demon-possessed people follow him. Teachers of the law follow him. What an what a eclectic group. Diversity. And here's a problem. The problem is that when a church, listen close, doesn't look like its community, there's a problem in the church. For example, if everybody that attends your church, it's an all-white church, but you live in a multicultural ethnic community, there's something desperately wrong with the church. If your church is an all-millennial church filled with only young adults and you're located in a city that's multi-generational and a neighborhood, there's something wrong with the church. If the average age in the city is 36, like ours, but the average age in the church is in their 50s and 60s, something's wrong. You're dying because you're not like your community. Second thing that I want you to notice in this church was that there was diversity in leadership. There are prophets, it says, and teachers. And so the... the, uh, Paul often refers to apost- leaders in the church, apostles and prophets. Second, usually behind apostles, is prophets. And he says, in this church are prophets. These are men that are proclaimers of the truth. They're foretellers of the word of God. They're foretellers. They're speaking God's word in alignment with God's written, revealed word. They're gifted to the church. And there's teachers, and these teachers are helping you to apply the Scripture to how you live your life every day. And then he lists this diversity of these leaders, and among them are Barnabas and Simeon and Lucius and Mannion and Saul, these five leaders that he identifies as prophets and teachers. Barnabas, first of all, is from Cyprus. He's a Jewish. He is a Levite. He's an encourager. He's deeply respected in Jerusalem. He's a sacrificial and generous giver, a relative of John Mark's. But he was a man of wealth and a man of means, and that's Barnabas. Now compare him to Simeon, who's also a leader in the church. His nickname, he's called, his name's Simeon, a Hebrew name, but he's called by a Latin nickname, and that's Niger. And Niger just simply means black or dark complexion. And so he is a Roman citizen. He has Roman privileges. And and he is clearly a black man in leadership in the life of this church. There's some speculation about who this man might be, And it's just 
speculation, but that he might actually be Simon of Cyrene. His sons were well known in Rome, and their names are Rufus and Alexander. Mark references them in Mark chapter 15, verse 21, and they're referenced again in Romans chapter 13. But we don't know. There's another man here named Lucius, and he's Cyrenian also from North Africa. And so he, as, as well, an African man leading the church in Antioch in Syria. And then there's Manian. And Manian grew up in Herod, the Tetrarch's home. Uh, uh, he grew up alongside Herod the Tetrarch. And Herod Antipas, you know, was the son of Herod the Great. And he had John the Baptist murdered. But he was brought up in Herod's household like a foster child or son and a close childhood friend. He has to be in his 60s, maybe his middle 60s by this time. So he, we have young men and older men in leadership. And then there's Saul, who is a Roman citizen. He's from Tarsus, fluent in, in Latin, fluent in Greek, fluent in Hebrew, studied in Jerusalem, a Pharisee, and he was a former persecutor of the church. So in the leadership of the church, you've got a Cypriot, you have Cyrenians, you have Jews, you have folks associated with the Idumean Herod, and a Pharisee, apostle to the Gentiles. What diversity in that church. Amen. Amen. I'm so glad that Bethel is choosing that we would go forward and embrace the future with other younger pastoral leaders beside us to help us to go to where God wants us to go. Second thing we notice about this church is a passion for God. They have a pursuit and a passion to know God and follow the Lord. It says they ministered to the Lord. They were worshiping and fasting to the Lord. They were serving the Lord. They were praying to the Lord, singing to the Lord, adoring the Lord, meditating on the Lord. They were looking into Scripture and to the law, teaching them as, as the, the, the prophecies of Scripture that was pointing to the Lord and pointing to the gospel. They were rehearsing and remembering together the gospel of the Lord Jesus and how Jesus lived and what Jesus taught and how Jesus died and how Jesus rose again and how their lives are changed forever because of the lordship of Jesus Christ. But there's a hunger, a passionate hunger to know God and to pursue him. It was a part of the church culture where they were ministering, serving. It's where we get the word litur liturgy from. It, 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 it was spiritual and sacrificial service unto God. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Don't neglect to do good and to share, for God's pleased with such sacrifices. In Acts chapter 20, verse 19, Paul is talking to the church's Ephesus before he leaves. And he says, remember how I was among you the whole time I was with you, serving whom? The Lord, with all humility and tears 
enduring trials that came by the plots of the Jews. This ministering to the Lord. Colossians chapter 3 says, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something you do for the Lord, not for people. They were ministering. They were loving the Lord. They were dependent on Him and fasting. That means, and Jay did a great job talking about this last week. It's this hunger that we have for God to commune with Him, longing for Him, willing to deny earthly or fleshly cravings to find our satisfaction in Him. It's the willingness to say no to something here so that we might say yes to Him with all of our hearts. Hmm. In Matthew chapter 9, John the Baptist's disciples got curious about Jesus and his disciples. And they come up to his disciples and to the Lord and ask this question. Why do the Pharisees, why do we, John the Baptist's disciples, and the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples, they don't fast. Jesus said, well, can the wedding guests be sad while the bridegroom's with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast. Let me ask you a question. Listen close. How would you evaluate worship in your life? How would you evaluate worship in your life? Is it passionate pursuit to know God? How would you evaluate worship in our church? I'm not talking about style or music or temperature. Is it a passionate longing to know Him? and to serve the Lord. The third characteristic that we notice, a mark that's found in this missionary healthy church, is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Notice in verse number two, it says, and they fasted, and the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work. I've called them to. The Holy Spirit is speaking. The Holy Spirit was working. The Holy Spirit was present among them. Jesus said in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I'm with them in their midst among them. Did you know the Lord's here today? Would you tell your neighbor he's here? No, tell him he's here. He is here. How many of y'all believe he's here right now? He's here. How is the Holy Spirit seen in a church that is healthy and vibrant and missionary? Just like the church in Antioch, the Holy Spirit is seen, his presence real. It's seen because lives were being changed. It's seen because marriages were being healed. The Holy Spirit is seen because 
forgiveness of sin is taking place. He has seen because relationships once broken are now being restored. The Holy Spirit is seen because lost people are being saved. The Holy Spirit is seen because disciples are being made. The Holy Spirit is seen because the love of God is central in the life of the people and love for one another. And there's unity in the church because the Spirit of God is working among the people of God. But the trouble today is that in many of our churches, it seems as if the Holy Spirit's not present. It seems that few people are captured by the truth that God is among us. That God is among us, that he is convicting us. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That he's comforting us, that he's converting us, that he's healing us, and that he's speaking to us. God is here, my friends, and we're communing with the Holy One today. God is speaking. We need to lift up our eyes like Isaiah did. In the year the king Isaiah died, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up on a throne. And his robe filled the temple and seraphim flew behind him. And they had six wings and with two they covered their faces. And with two they covered their feet. And with two, they did fly. How would you like to see that sight? And they cried out one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the doorposts of the temple shook at the sound of the voice. Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And one of the seraphim took a coal off of the altar with tongs, and he brought the burning coal and placed it to my lips, and sin was expiated. It was taken care of and removed. Then I heard a voice saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here am I. Send me. Send me. You know, you sense the holy presence of God among us. It's that very passage of Scripture that God spoke to me when I was just a teenage boy in my mom and dad's house. I was 18 years old and nobody else was home. I was reading the scripture and I was reading in Isaiah and I was just reading in that passage of scripture. I knelt on my knees all alone. I laid that Bible in the seat of my father's reclining chair and I read it and I wept and I laid on the floor and I put my face on the ground and I said, God in heaven, if you can use me, take me. Here I am and send me. And I knew it was his voice calling me. Missionary churches and healthy churches, young men and young women 
sense and feel in older women and older men sense and feel the call of God on their life and they surrender to go and be sent by Him. The presence of the Holy Spirit. Sending and commissioning. Fourthly, the discernment of the Holy Spirit was in the congregation. The congregation is able to discern the voice of the Spirit. The whole church is discerning the voice of the Spirit. How did the church hear? It says the church themselves, they, they knew that God was Spirit speaking to them. He said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I've called them. And when they, plural, the church fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them away. The Holy Spirit was working in the church. Maybe they discerned it because the prophets spoke. Maybe they discerned it because the leaders were in agreement with how God was speaking. But all of the people were able to discern to the level to say, Amen. If God is speaking to the prophets, if God is speaking to our teachers, if God is speaking to our leaders, if God is speaking to the elders among us, then Amen. Amen, we believe too. Amen, the Spirit of God is speaking too. God is calling us to sin. Now, I do think it was a bit perplexing, probably. I want you to send your two best teachers, Barnabas and Saul, to the work I've called them to. But they said yes. The problem in most evangelical churches, nobody can say an amen to what the Spirit's doing because so many in the church are not praying all week long, not reading their Bible all week long, not seeking God, not seeking as well. Some of us, there's such rebellion in us often, and, and I'm speaking to myself too. And we're skeptics and contrarians and fearful. Let me tell you what the Holy Spirit will never do. The Holy Spirit will never lead you to do something contrary to the Word of God. Secondly, the Holy Spirit will never lead you as a church to unhealth, but He leads you to health. It's the body of Christ. And that's why we must obey and discern the Spirit's voice in our church. Amen? Number four, or number five, whatever it is, corporate prayer and fasting ought to mark the church. Prayerlessness is a problem in contemporary evangelical church. Listen close. We give little time to prayer, if we're honest. In our corporate gathered meetings, little time is spent to prayer. In our private lives, little time in prayer. Here's the truth, I'm afraid. We spend more time sharing prayer requests than actually praying. 
We spend more time talking about prayer needs and worrying about prayer concerns than praying. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Paul said, don't be anxious about anything. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians that we're to pray without ceasing. And this is what we pray for. We pray for his kingdom to come. We pray for the lost to be saved. We pray that the saved would grow. We pray that Satan would be defeated. We pray that blind eyes would be opened. We pray that his holy name would be praised and his name glorified. We need to pray that we'll have the courage to do his will. We need to pray for forgiveness of our sins. We need to pray that we'll forgive one another of their trespasses. We need to forget, pray for the unity of the spirit, which is the bond of peace. And we need to pray that we know the will of God. And we need to pray that we've kept from the evil one. And we need to pray that God would provide for our needs. And we need to pray as if we're dependent on God because we are. We must be a people of prayer. And finally, a mark of a great missionary church is obedience to do God's revealed will. It says, after they fasted and prayed, that they laid their hands on them and sent them away. Saul and Barnabas. They sent them off. God's revealed will was to send Barnabas and Saul. The church fasted and they prayed and then they laid their hands on them. Now, they're not ordaining them. These brothers have been believers a long time. But they're identifying with them the way that we do before we send a mission team out or somebody that's serving in a special way. We put our hands on them and we're saying amen to them and we're saying we're united with you. We're praying with you. And as you go, we go with you too. And they're sent by the church. But something very interesting. Would you look in verse number four? So they, being sent forth by the Holy Spirit, Verse 3 says they were sent by the church. Verse 4 says they were sent by the Holy Spirit. Can you understand this? The ministry that God had called them to was initiated by God himself. The sending agent is the Holy Spirit. And the church is just in alignment, in agreement with what the Spirit of God's doing. Amen? He has revealed his will to us too. Also, And we don't have to, that's not debatable, it's clear. It's the revealed will of God 
that we are to go and make disciples of all the nations. It's the revealed will of God to go and proclaim the gospel. It's the revealed will of God to teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. It's the revealed will of God that we be one as the Father and the Son are one. It's the revealed will of God that we're to be in unity with one another. It's the revealed will of God that we're to do unto others as you'd have them, uh, as they would uh, do unto you. It's the revealed will of God. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. It is the revealed will of God to love your neighbor as yourself. It's the revealed will of God that we, by this, shall all men know that you're my disciples. You have love for one another. It's the revealed will of God that we love our enemies. It's the revealed will of God that we forgive one another of our, their sin. It's the revealed will of God that Jesus Christ is to be Lord of our life and our church. And our church. Amen? Amen. My friends, these are exciting days. Yes, the culture is getting darker. Yes, secularism is spreading. Yes, but in the backdrop of the darkness, we can let the light shine. But it's time for the church of Christ to come back to the purpose that God has called us to, to be His people. Amen. Father in heaven, may we be church like the church in Antioch healthy vibrant missionary giving worshiping praying serving united discerning filled with the spirit in Jesus name I pray amen amen